0: Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. Before we talk about this episode's guest, I want to share a development with my own career. I found out a couple weeks ago that I won the Overseas Press Club Award for Best Reporting in Any Medium in Latin America as part of a trio with my two colleagues. Shout out to Stephen Eisenhammer and Wesley Marcelino. I was so surprised when I got the call saying we won. i had forgotten to open my email that morning since I was trying to focus on a project, so I thought my coworker, Stephen, was calling me to say I'd missed an email about a big breaking news story or something that I had to jump on. After he told me, when I looked, I really couldn't believe my eyes at the email saying we'd won. When we submitted it, I really didn't think we had a chance of winning. For those that don't know, the Overseas Press Club Awards are the highest honor for foreign reporting, other than the Pulitzer Prize category for international reporting. Anyway, this is really a high point in my career, and I'm looking forward to celebrating with colleagues at the awards ceremony in New York later this month. We won for a series of seven stories about destruction of Brazil's Amazon rainforest, which has been the big picture story I've dedicated myself to for three years now. My contributions included an investigation into Brazil's military deployment to stop rainforest destruction, which took me 10 months to complete, and a follow-up investigation into how President Jair Bolsonaro has obstructed the system for environmental fines. I also did a story about scientists out in the Amazon measuring how much carbon the forest contains. There was really a lot of literal sweat put into that one. Shout out to my collaborator, Marco Hernandez, who made it into a beautiful interactive feature. He was just named the best designer in the world by the Society of News Designers. No surprise there, really. The stories contributed by Stephen and photos by Wesley were equally big, important stories that were brilliantly executed. We didn't plan all these out in a package or anything. It just kind of happened over the course of the year. I think that organic nature of it really turned out to be a strength in the end. I'd say the main takeaway that other people have said on this podcast is really just to stick to a story and don't let go. The Amazon is the big story I've thought about nearly every day since the 2019 fires brought global attention to it. The persistence paid off. Okay, enough of my grandstanding. On to our guest. For this episode, I spoke to Lucinda Elliott, a correspondent for the Financial Times based in Uruguay. Lucinda currently covers the southern cone of South America, which includes Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, and Paraguay. But that's a relatively recent development. Lucinda's career actually started at the Financial Times, and as you'll hear, seems to get off to a good start until she gets laid off. So she took the plunge and moved to South America as a freelancer, first in Venezuela, then in Brazil, and now, unexpectedly, in Uruguay, where she holds citizenship. Soon, she'll be moving to Argentina as the story there heats up. Unlike someone like me, who showed up a few years ago in Brazil with relatively little preparation, Lucinda is steeped in Latin America— she grew up in a family with roots in South America. She studied Portuguese and Spanish at university and has lived in a variety of Latin American countries. She'll tell us how she interviewed the former president of Brazil, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, or Lula, and how she reported out the early pandemic in Rio de Janeiro. And we'll also hear a fair bit about Uruguay, a country that I think has virtually never been mentioned on the podcast before. I've tracked Lucinda's work for several years now since she wrote for the Times of London and Monocle, and I'm delighted to finally have her on the show. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Lucinda Elliott, the Financial Times correspondent for the Southern Cone of South America. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lucinda.
1: Well, a real treat, actually, to be here, Jake. Thank you for having me on. Your podcast, I must admit, has got me through many long pandemic walks, um, first in Rio, up in the kind of hills of Santa Teresa during lockdown, and later here in Uruguay. So it's great to be on.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. And I appreciate you making the time. I know you've been very busy on the road in Chile, and maybe some other places, but uh, we'll get into that. So yeah, if you could just start by telling our listeners, where you are geographically, a little bit about the space around you, and then what your past few days of work have been like.
1: Yeah, so I'm currently sitting in my apartment that I've rented for the past year in Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay, which overlooks the city's Rambler, which I believe is the longest waterfront promenade anywhere in the world. And we're right on a river, the Rio de la Plata, which is only a short ferry ride from Buenos Aires in Argentina, and it can get terribly hot and sticky during the Southern Hemisphere summer here, but it's mid-March, so those kind of stifling days at the start of the year are thankfully behind us. It's bright sunshine and fresh today. And this past week, well, yes, I returned from Chile, having covered the presidential inauguration there. We have the youngest ever leader, Gabriel Boric, who assumed office. And I take the boat to Buenos Aires regularly, given the ongoing IMF Argentina saga, um, which there were some major developments this week. I mean, for those unfamiliar with the story, the Argentine government has, well, for the past coming on two years, been locked in negotiations with the International Monetary Fund to basically come up with a new agreement with the lender after the country borrowed a record, record amount in 2018, and we had quite a bit to cover on this deal this week because March 22nd is seen as a as a kind of a deadline to get this new deal signed off. So yeah, a few late nights, several trips. Um, So I have to say I'm looking forward to getting on my bicycle and after speaking to you, Jake, and going for a ride along the Rambler.
0: (laughs) Sounds nice. And yeah, I'm curious how you ended up in Uruguay, but we'll get there later on. Just to start, so people know the whole story of how you got to where you are today, if you could tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest in journalism early on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was born and grew up in South London, more specifically for those who are familiar with our vast tube or subway system of London. The closest tube station to me throughout my childhood was Balham or Tooting Beck, which is on the northern line. That's the black line. And I lived between two homes, relatively close to one another. My parents divorced when I was very young, age four, and in fact, no one's parents really at that time Were divorced. And so, uncharacteristically, my father used to take me to school most days. Uh, He was a music producer and sort of the only man stood outside the school gates with the other so called yummy mummies, as the English phrase goes. (laughs) Um, And he'd go to sports day, to school plays, he'd arrange dinner parties with the parents of the school. And my mother, she worked in finance, so she was up and about very early each morning and took the tube into the City of London, which is, give or take, half an hour away from where I grew up. And so I had quite a strong sense of the importance of having a career, really, of earning your own money from a young age as a woman, sometimes possibly resenting her a little bit when I was young, that she wasn't there at the gate. But whichever way you sort of look at it, my family was slightly different. And my setup up and my routine was also quite different. And I suppose now in this kind of context of wider questions around equal rights and feminism. It was a real privilege, really, to have had a mother who was part of this new generation, really, who took on big roles in business, juggled the kind of work home life that we're still debating today. And then with school, well, I'll be honest, I found school fairly easy. I was often described by teachers as, a, as an all-rounder. I got fairly good marks, pretty consistent. I played a bit of sport. I really enjoyed acting in the school plays member of the choir, organise school events, but I didn't really love one thing or excel at one specific thing, which with hindsight works quite well sometimes when you cover news. You know, you need to know or at least have an interest in a little bit of everything and don't get too bogged down or, or too obsessed over one subject or one story. I mean, you can for a time, but you've then got to move on to the next quite quickly. And with journalism specifically... I mean, none of my relatives were in the industry, but current affairs were kind of a key part of dinner table conversation on both sides of the family. So my paternal grandfather was in Myanmar, in Burma, during the Second World War. Oh, well. And my mother was born in Uruguay. My mother and my grandmother, she was Anglo-Uruguayan, and my grandpa, Ampa, on my mother's side, was Argentine. So we have kind of an international Perspective. I mean, in the case of my mother, you know, she'd come home with the Evening Standard, which was a London daily, which is now free to read but wasn't at the time, and she'd talk about different things happening over dinner and markets and things. And my father would buy equally a whole stack of different weekend papers the Times of London for sport, Telegraph for kind of understanding local British politics, The Observer for the foodie magazine and restaurant reviews to take out his music clients. So Kind of with no set view, he also wanted to know a bit of everything. And I suppose, lastly, at my, at my mother's house, I also had a live-in au pair, a live-in nanny, from the age of around three. And they were young female students who'd come to London, first mainly from Spain, Italy or Portugal, but as Europe changed, we're talking about the early 90s, and more countries started joining the EU. They came from Slovakia, from the Czech Republic... Or hungry and as I was thinking where journalism or in my case foreign corresponding fits in with that I realised from, from a very young age I was around people from different cultures who read or had experienced very different things and would talk about where they came from. English was also not necessarily their first language and that perhaps cemented my interest and a, a sensibility around being able to ask questions, to be quite bold, to not be afraid, you know, this kind of more international mindset beyond the depths of South London. You know, what do you do for Christmas in Prague? I mean, I would know because of what Jana had told me age nine. But it wasn't really until university that I actually wrote an article and decided fairly quickly that this was what I wanted to do.
0: Sure. And I know in the UK, most people do not study journalism for undergrad. Most places just don't offer it. So where did you go and what did you study and how did you write that first article?
1: So I went to Bristol University, which is in the west of England, and my degree was in modern languages after a fairly heated debate with my parents, age 17, about <laughs> wanting to be an actress and wanting to go off on the road and then basically saying, you need a university degree, which they, they were probably pretty right about that. Um, and it was my first term at Bristol and you're invited to sign up to societies, you know, kind of a college, the university thing, so cheese society, knitting society, uh, kite surfing. <laughs> kite surfing particularly because Bristol's on the water. And I, I guess back to what I was saying earlier about the all-roundedness, I didn't really have an obvious pick. I mean, I wasn't going to kite, but I didn't really care so much for cheese. <laughs> and the newspaper, the epigram, was the only society that was free to join. All the others charged like a fiver or three pounds and that was it. I mean I started writing, I later became an editor of a section in my second year and then in my final year I edited an arts magazine and these were all print so you know, we were taught how to do the layout. You know, there, was, there were editorial meetings. We learned how to commission. But visually, kind of what it would look like on page. And I mean, and I, I only really write for print publications now. And yeah, as I say, I studied uh, Spanish and Portuguese. And I, I chose those two languages because, as I slightly mentioned, the other side of me, and that probably explains more than any of the above, is my maternal grandparents lived all my life in South America, specifically Brazil. And poignantly, really, they lived at the age I am now in Uruguay, um, and that's when they had my mother and my aunt. So it was a fairly easy choice. I mean, I didn't speak Portuguese fluently, but we'd go most years. My cousins and extended family all speak multiple languages. and, And then part of my degree I did a year abroad, first to Buenos Aires, where, oddly, I met the then Southern Cone correspondent at the FT, Jude Webber. Well, I I didn't meet her first. I mean, I pestered her on email. (laughs) Um, And she couldn't couldn't have been nicer. And here we are a decade or so later, and I'm basically Jude with the FT. And then the second half was, because with the two languages, you sort of split your time in two places. And the second half was studying journalism at the University of Santa Catarina in Florianopolis, or Ufski, as it's known in Brazil. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I imagine you might have been, Jake, but it's this gorgeous peninsula, part of southern Brazil, um, a popular tourist destination, given it's, what, I don't know, 42 beaches, I think, where, I mean, quite honestly, I spent more time surfing and partying than studying, but (laughs) I did meet lots of young, kind of budding reporters and my professors when classes did go ahead because there were a lot of strikes. There was a public university where former editors or, or broadcasters mainly because news is kind of bigger on TV in Brazil than print. And yeah, it was a great time. And each university holiday, I'd apply for internships. I was also extremely lucky because I could stay with one of my parents and didn't have to pay for accommodation in London. I think our industry in Britain is very... It's quite fickle in that way, you know. It's 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 obviously changing slightly. The BBC moved out; it's now in Manchester and two other cities, but it's very centralised in Britain. So, I was in a very privileged position just by being there, and so I did a stint at the Independent newspaper in my second year, the Times actually in my final year. I did CNBC television. So basically, when I graduated in 2012, I had a any minute but credible bit of journalism experience under my belt and it was my languages oddly that would turn out to be the reason that I landed my first job so um, all that sort of current affairs stuff it turns out the one thing I'm I'm quite naturally good at my one specialism kind of shined through.
0: And yeah I mean it seems like uh, I know a few people who are this kind of British Argentine, British mixed uh, background like Anthony Bodel he's Mm. british argentine but like has a bunch of relatives in brazil and like yeah it's interesting how these british families kind of spread across several countries
1: a lot of it for for our sort of parents generations was linked to dictatorships right so you've got to also remember the context of the sort of late 50s 60s 70s and where job opportunities were i mean in the case of My grandparents, before they went to Brazil, uh, they were mainly based in Argentina. They just happened to have my mum in Uruguay. Uh, But that was under Perón, right? And then, you know, depending on what sort of side you're on and what sort of opportunities are available to you, you switch elsewhere. And Brazil, for example, in the early 1960s was booming, you know, and architecturally and things like that. So, so yeah, I think it's quite an, an interesting one, particularly over the last sort of 50 years and then sort of another wave towards the 80s as well, early 80s and you know when other dictatorships came and went people who'd exiled coming back so yeah.
0: And uh, yeah uh, my wife's parents live in Florianopolis so I've been there like 10-12 times a lot. (laughs) Um, A beautiful place.
1: Oh the dream.
0: So when you were there it must have been you caught some of the tail end of the Brazil boom times it must have been for sure which I missed entirely <laughs> um,
1: yeah I remember the real the currency at the time it was basically about three reais to the dollar which now I mean obviously it's fluctuated quite a bit recently but no it was boom time and actually that sort of leads me into my first job because after that year abroad I graduated the following year and my first job was at the FT where I work now 10 years on but I was based in London And the paper had set up a research service that looked first at China, China Confidential, which was led by James King, who, I mean, he's been reporting on Asia for, gosh, more than three decades probably, and is now the global China editor for the paper based in Hong Kong. And fairly soon after that, when, you know, the two bricks were booming, they soon launched Brazil Confidential, and they needed a Portuguese speaker. And it was primarily data-driven journalism which I mean it sounds fairly common today but 10 years ago was pretty innovative and we'd survey kind of maybe consumer trends in Brazil and build stories around those figures and what was going on politically or new policy for subscribers. So for example stories around things like which margarines were selling better in some Brazilian states than others. Uh, turned out the healthier, lighter-looking margarine was doing better in the big southern cities like where you are in Sao Paulo, and the thick yellow-looking stuff, much better up north, where they have a very rich culinary tradition. Um, and some of those actually formed part of uh, what they called the, the Beyond Bricks blog, which was all about coverage, which was you know, a popular blog at the time. And, yeah, so it was just at that tail end of when things in Brazil were were booming, and Brazil Confidential was led by Richard Lapper, the former FT Latin America editor, who actually has written a fantastic book on Brazil recently titled Beef, Bible and Bullets, for anyone who's interested in Bolsonaro's Brazil, I'd highly recommend. And um, Richard was and still is. He was the best guide to the industry that I could have hoped for. I mean, he was always encouraging me to pitch to other parts of the paper, kind of carefully going through articles, explaining how to make them better. I mean, I still send him things today. In fact, we were talking about Chile only yesterday um, and sharing ideas, for which I'm you know, forever grateful because Brazil then entered into recession in 2014. So Brazil Confidential then became kind of LATAM, Confidential, which eventually closed which sort of reflects this whole economic situation in the region, right? And from there, I did a stint in the main FT newsroom, right up until about the Brexit, yes, to the Brexit referendum in 2016. So all in around three and a half to four years working for a recognised publication and, and kind of getting experience.
0: Sure, and what types of stories did you cover for the general newsroom?
1: Well, the newsroom, it was sort of a a three-month stint where we did a lot on sort of European shares and obviously all building up to the Brexit vote and then the kind of aftermath on that. There was a big sort of Iraq inquiry going on at the time, kind of live blogging that. And at the same time, I mean, the FT was bought by Nikkei of Japan, Oh, yeah. That was just before Brexit. I mean, probably top of the market price, really. Um, and uh, <laughs> But no, unfortunately, they were making cuts. And me, at the age of 27, was made redundant. Despite a lot of support from my editors and also from the union, I've kind of been roving around. They were trying to find me somewhere to place me, right? Because the confidentials had closed, or the LATAM one had. And I'd kind of been moving around. And... I mean, it was a big blow, you know, for someone who felt like they were just about getting somewhere. You know, I had a full-time paid salary job in London, initially with a nod to Latin America and then covering kind of broader news. And I'll never forget, I was in the newsroom. I was essentially hot desking at that point, counting down the days to when I was expected to leave. And the then world editor placed a, a cutting, a newspaper cutting, on my desk and said, you should apply for this, Lucinda. And that cutting was from the Times of London advertising a scheme. It's a bursary for young, budding foreign correspondents in honour of Richard Beeston, who is the former foreign editor at the Times, who died tragically from cancer. And so his wife, Natasha, set up this bursary in his memory, and Richard actually started out in Beirut and spent an awful lot of time working on stories from the Middle East so the scheme not only supports an aspiring Brit to go abroad but also invites someone from the Middle East to go to London every year to work on the foreign desk and I was just desperate to leave London or desperate just to get out basically and go to Latin America and so that was my ticket.
0: Did you have to put together a specific proposal like I'm going to go to this place and do this thing and and what was that?
1: Yeah, so I pitched Venezuela as the destination to the Foreign Desk. At the time, this is late 2016, so Venezuela's economy is already in pretty sharp decline, but there were also serious questions around the authoritarian nature of the president. Uh, There had been protests when Nicolás Maduro had come to power in 2014, after the death of Hugo Chávez. And basically, there were these municipal elections that were planned for early 2017, and I had a hunch, and also having done research, that these wouldn't go ahead. And if not, people would become angry and take to the streets. Well, that was my pitch. And sure enough, after some hostile environment training in the British countryside uh, and getting a visa, I landed, and within six weeks of me arriving in Caracas in early 2017, there were mass demonstrations. So, right place, right time. And with a journalist <laughs> visa, which, which was pretty unheard of at that stage. So, yeah, and, and Venezuela really set me up for being a freelancer. I mean, the bursary gives you a, a really good start, gives you a nice sort of cushion. There was also hyperinflation at the time. So I think it was probably the most affordable place to live anywhere in the world at that stage, <laughs> uh, if you earned in foreign currency. And I wrote almost every week for the paper. The then Latin America editor, he had been in, in Rio and was replaced, they hired someone new based in Caracas, based on this idea that obviously there were a lot more newsworthy stories coming from you know, north of the continent. And it was Stephen Gibbs, who has also been on your show oh, very okay. recently. It was a great, great interview, Jake. Thanks. And you know, Steve has had a remarkable career and has been very kind to me. So I was living in the same city as the Times editor... And so, again, he could kind of guide me. We could get to know each other in person, which I think is very important in our industry. And also when you're corresponding, you know, you some, sometimes just send these pictures out into the ether and you're just like, who are these people? <laughs> so, so he really helped me with that. And, yeah, I ended up filing to the foreign desk for nearly four years in total, first in Caracas and, and later Brazil. So, so yeah.
0: And you wrote almost exclusively for Times of London or did you also write for others since you were technically a freelancer? No,
1: exactly. It totally set me up. So for those four years, I i mean, the, the Times has a very broad range of stories that they're after, but Latin America is never really at the top of the news agenda. So, I mean, I was covering everything from sort of British tourists lost in the depths of the Amazon to <laughs> sinking military submarines in Argentina to kind of the string of important presidential elections. But I also ensured that I, you know, I needed to, to earn money and have other strings. So I started just doing radio for Monocle Radio. Monocle Magazine as a, a British publication. And then obviously did features for them. They have a lovely design and foodie section and was later appointed as their Latin America affairs correspondent. This was at Monocle magazine, which I still hold now. And yeah, over those four years, as I say, I I first started off in Caracas. I then went to Sao Paulo, where I lived for about two years, later Rio. Initially, the, the move to Brazil in late 2017 was ahead of the election there, and I just stayed. And then in January of 2020, I headed to Rio to kind of get a different perspective of Brazil. But basically, no, I've been... Between The Times and Monocle, it worked out really well.
0: Yeah, wow. How, how did you start working for Monocle? Did you just send a pitch, or were they looking for somebody?
1: Well, I, I remember one of my first stories in Venezuela was about the biggest or the, the main maternity hospital in Caracas, and oddly, my grandmother had told me about it because back in the 1950s, it was considered sort of the best maternity hospital in South America, would you believe? So, I mean, people from Uruguay would even possibly consider going there if they had the money to, to have their children. And I went with a local reporter, Issa Shen. She was just fantastic. Her beat was health. And there was this kind of dark corridor to the staff canteen and just black water dripping into these buckets from the ceiling. And we sat down to conduct interviews with the doctors and nurses, and I I just kept looking at this sort of hole in the wall by the kind of (laughs) crockery and cups of coffee. And it was this odd shape. It was sort of like perfectly rectangular. And at one stage, I just asked, like, what happened there? And they explained how the microwave had been stolen and ripped out of the wall from its place. (laughs) And I was just absolutely astounded, not only due to the lack of security, you know, whoever it was made it inside kind of the staff space, but also that a microwave, you know, is a very cheap appliance. I mean, I remember, I don't know, dividing up the cost of one with some flatmates and it can't have come to more than sort of five pounds, four dollars each. And I realised, you know, then I'd never been in a place like Venezuela in 2017 before. You know, as much as you try to kind of take a step back, and I'm, again, in a very privileged position, it really opened my eyes to how, how a country can change. And I think that the, possibly some of the editors at Monocle had read that piece. They'd also... We'd been in touch when I was in London at the FT, and so they called me up and asked me for, for kind of a radio hit on the back of that story, to talk about the state of the kind of healthcare, And I I kind of also remember sort of commenting about how if I'd been a male reporter, it would have been very difficult to do that story. You know, I I wouldn't have been allowed in, I don't think. I look like someone who would go and visit a newborn and their mother. And I think from that sort of first, yeah, that that, that first Venezuela story, I managed to kind of subsequently hone in on on that, kind of my position and perspective as a young woman and, and putting that into pitches and thinking of ideas from the region. You know, I've written extensively about abortion, about nurses during the pandemic, religious minorities, ayahuasca groups, Jewish communities. So, so yeah, so I think, I think it was sort of positioning and thinking about the pitch in a, in a slightly different way that meant that I stood out, perhaps, when compared to the other reporters who were based in Caracas at the time.
0: Sure. And in terms of moving to Brazil, was that an easy choice? I I seem to remember, because I came to Brazil in 2017, uh, mid-2017 July, and I remember the Venezuela story was still very, very hot. There were, you know, our photographers for Reuters were publishing, you know, very shocking photos about injured protesters and things like that. Obviously, I mean, the election was approaching in Brazil, but, uh, I mean, was it an obvious choice or, or... Were you conflicted about leaving Venezuela?
1: I mean, it was very simple. My visa ran out. Uh, So I wanted to carry on with this setup. I'd set myself up as a a freelancer. I wanted to sort of broaden out. And I was aware that there was this election at the end of 2018. Here we are, sort of like a year previous. But ultimately, I went to Sao Paulo because I had secured an interview with the two-times former president of Brazil, Lula, and so that was the ticket. That was my ticket out of Venezuela, and I subsequently just stayed. I realised that there was plenty to report on. And then kind of I started uh, pitching just general news from the region and using Sao Paulo as the base to do that, rather than a Caracas. Uh, and, and that sort of... As I say, I was there in Sao Paulo for about two and a half years, and I found I'd got pretty comfortable by then. You know, you sort of hang out with the same group of people... And so I decided in in January of 2020, I I said, you know, I'll I'll move to Rio, kind of get a different perspective. And and well, you know, rather than kind of samba and beach life, I mean, I covered the marathon story of a lifetime from Rio, which was the coronavirus, which was certainly quite something, not quite what what I (laughs) had planned. But yeah, and then that led to me. Last year, I came to Uruguay due to pandemic travel, essentially. that I was visiting family in England. There was this new UK variant coupled with this new thing that they called P1 in Brazil. And so I was completely stuck. I mean, there were no flights between the two. And my mother just said, what about Uruguay? And uh, they had to let me in because I have nationality. So, And the flights were running. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> couldn't have been a better choice, really.
0: And then, OK, so you're in Sao Paulo. You moved to Rio. Uh, what, what was your experience like covering the pandemic? Because... You know, at that point, you're a freelancer. I mean, how how much risk, I guess, did you take on? Were you getting out there, going to hospitals? Uh, how did you go about covering the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so, so initially, I mean, I was very lucky in a sense. The first three months of 2020, I mean, there was just a sort of blissful ignorance about the virus, right? So I managed to do a lot of, I covered carnival Um, I was doing also a lot of... When I moved to Sao Paulo, I started doing live TV. Um, France 24, which is a French channel, they have an English-speaking service, and it was great because, you know, they had budget to go all over the country, and I would, on the back of that, pitch things to the Times. So we would go to the Amazon, we would go to, you know, as I say, Rio Carnival, and we'd sort of do pieces to camera, and then on the back of that I would do a radio package or I'd do a story. And so I had sort of three months of, like, this kind of Rio experience, and I never forget it was the last day of carnival, which is a half day quadr and I, and I was just like oh i 'm just going to go to a little street party because hey it 's kind of the end i 've done my work stint and you know just to have a to have a kind of a half day off and I was in this like what we call a blocker, which is like a street party, like glitter on my face and I mean, it's huge crowds, and my phone rings, and it's, you know, that plus 44, which is for England. I thought, oh, God, it's an editor in London. I thought, should I answer? Oh, oh well, yeah, go on. Go on, Luc. And sure enough, they'd said, Lucinda, the first death to the coronavirus has been reported in Brazil. Can you go home and write a story? And I just couldn't believe it. Just all these people just, like kissing and dancing and I was like this thing has been rolling around for a lot longer than, than suddenly finally you know the, the, the last half day of carnival it's formally announced by the health ministry um mm-hmm. and then from there yeah it was a really I was living alone which again I had never done before I'd rented a flat on my own and it was very isolating it was it was very scary I I was living up in Santa Teresa which oddly at the turn of the sort of the 20th century, was a famous place for when there was a huge yellow fever outbreak. So people used to go up to the hills of Santa Teresa, good to get far away from the illness down below by the ports. I thought it was quite ironic, given the, the new pandemic, that I was up on this hill in my apartment. And yeah, for several months, I mean, all the beaches were closed. I would get out every day, but you go sort of gauging your own sense of What you're comfortable with. I mean, really, we knew very little about it. I remember the day I first bought a mask, all of that sort of thing. But the newspaper hadn't really said, don't do this or don't do that. It was just a sense of, well, you know, what you feel comfortable with. I'm very lucky. I don't have a previous history of, you know, I don't have health issues in terms of respiratory problems or things like that. And after a while, I just got bored, right? I got bored of, I remember having (laughs) to do stories where. The editors would be like, oh, yeah, so what, you know, what's her commute like to, I was doing a piece about these nurses. And, you know, what's her commute like? And I couldn't go on the bus with her. You know, I had to then ask all these questions at the end of our interview, like thinking about how to write the story. You know, how long is your commute? What sort of things do you pass by? You know, what sort of time do you get in? You know, or details about the clothes she's wearing, you know. And you're thinking, had I just, in a normal way, I would just be sitting on the bus with her. And so I did. I I just kind of pushed myself a little bit towards kind of about June, July. And I found, yeah, I mean, sometimes it was worth it. Other times you did go home and think, oh, dear, was that really necessary? But I did get very frustrated with just being on the phone all the time. And people, equally, people were not really willing to meet, you know.
0: That's true. So
1: for kind of more formal interviews, I mean, you weren't expected to go down and interview a minister or something like that. I mean, most of them were taking their own precautions.
0: So what was the situation like with COVID in Rio specifically, considering I was in Brasilia and it was a very, Brazil is a very different city than the rest of Brazil.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Rio sort of is famed for being a little bit lawless, right? And sort of anything goes. And in, in one aspect, I did kind of agree I agreed a bit with the president at the time that you can't impose lockdowns they just don't work in a city like Rio for example and one example really is it was the beach like the beach has a whole economy that is built around it whether it's people selling hair braids or bottles of beer or just you know there's a whole there's a whole group of people that depend on beach culture and they closed the beaches i mean i think it was Eight or nine consecutive weeks, and I came down as I say, I was living in the hills of santa Teresa, and so i I came down I, I took a cab and I got him to drop me off at one end of Ipanema, just by the Apuador and I walked and I mean you weren 't allowed to sit on the sand there wasn 't really a heavy police presence, but you know there were people sort of telling people to move off, but people were absolutely terrified they didn't they didn 't go down, um, so I walked along the whole of Ipanema, essentially on my own, with not a single, you know, sun umbrella or, you know, someone trying to sell you something which often gets very annoying on a weekend. You know, you're sort of like bombarded, particularly when you look like me. I mean, I'm just completely, you know, white as the snow. You can see me from a mile off trying to sell me, you know, bits of jewellery and God knows what. <laughs> and there was no one. And I, it, was, it was very strange. It was very strange. And I, I did feel, you know, I'm never going to see this again in my lifetime, And it it made me realise, like, they couldn't really close the beach, how many people depended on that, and people were very hard up. And sure enough, it didn't last. After about eight or nine weeks, the mayor said, we have to allow businesses to function here, the little kiosks on the side, because there's just no other way for these people to survive. So that, that, I think, when people hear about Brazil, and particularly some of the things that Bolsonaro has said, you have to remember that every city is different And different parts of Brazil are kind of designed in very different ways. And so, therefore, one idea might work in the case for, you know, a megacity like Sao Paulo and in the case of of a Rio just doesn't fly, basically. It was something that would always stay with me.
0: (laughs) Sure, yeah. And, I mean, I remember going out after the first three months. We didn't really go out at all. And I, like, walked to our office, which is like half an hour away, but you have to cross the center of town which kind of looks down on the esplanada and it was, you know, very very dead. But honestly, are there ever that many people on the streets in Brasilia? No. So, uh, it wasn't that. <laughs> <weird>. um,
1: <laughs> yeah, you don't get the full effect. Yeah. 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 No, certainly. No, and, and certainly because we just come out of carnival as well. So it was that that dramatic contrast from having this carnival to then within Two weeks of carnival, everything was closed. So I think it was that that sort of level of drastic... Which I imagine possibly like the City of London must have happened. You know, all these people squirrelling away and going down into the underground and then suddenly, well, there's no one.
0: And, I mean, it sounds like you got to Uruguay through kind of a process of elimination and what was it planned do you still have things in Rio you were never able to go back and get or
1: you'll laugh no I do I do I actually I remember (laughs) because I had to take on when I was going to England as well because again you know Brazil was considered this kind of pariah you know it's like where are you coming from and so there were very few flights to the UK they only went from Sao Paulo so I took all my stuff in a car drove to Sao Paulo left it in a friend's house, and it's still there now. I mean, I should go to Brazil and pick it up. But then after a year that without some of these things, I mean, you just start realizing that you don't really need very much, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just a lot of books, um, you know, cooking equipment and a few kind of a duvet, which, you know, things like that, but um, non-perishables. But yeah, I mean, it was that I I left assuming, uh, sort of preparing that I might be in England for a while, but always thinking that I'd be going back to Brazil you know but no I have to say coming to Uruguay I mean it couldn't have been a better choice they've dealt with the virus extremely well they have the highest vaccination rate alongside Chile and, and I believe Cuba if you believe the statistics out of Cuba and mm-hmm. because I was here in what is called the southern cone the FT offered me a job last year and, and I've been between Buenos Aires and Montevideo ever since.
0: Sure. How, how is it covering things out of Uruguay? I mean, uh, like I said earlier, I don't know that I've ever spoken to a correspondent based in Uruguay. Does it make much of a difference?
1: I think this is a real exception. As I say, I, I didn't choose to come and correspond here, it, although it's very interesting that AFP has a ha, has their headquarters here. There are several sort of regional news channels as well that have their bases here, for sort of tax reasons and things like that. So I'm really really lucky. I've met quite a few journalists here and young reporters. And recently, Uruguay has really kind of positioned itself as a place to do film. Because of all the restrictions and things are so complex in Argentina at the moment with all sorts of controls, Uruguay has really captured a film market for the likes of Netflix, for telenovelas in Brazil. And that's kind of also linked That is well-managed... Uh, the virus outbreak you know they've really kept the numbers low and so when they're trying to send teams of you know film crews here it has really sort of changed so I found I found it's quite a creative place actually Um, and a lot of people kind of crossing through ultimately I am moving to Buenos Aires it's you know it's kind of an inevitable because the story is building there but I'd say really here you're more likely to be covering news elsewhere right so it's more about trying to balance that. And because the Southern Cone, it's, they're all fairly close together. I mean, it takes me two hours to get to Chile from here. Paraguay's, you know, a couple of hours away as well. So, yeah, I think that kind of combination. I, I've done a lot for Monocle from Uruguay, which I'm really pleased about. I think there's a real interest nowadays in places that are more niche or are a little bit odd and kind of... People just unfamiliar, you know? They're unfamiliar with the, with the, with the culture, but they're curious. And I think sometimes that sort of... It plays better than when you're in, you know, one of the big beer moths like Brazil. And unfortunately, maybe there's just not quite... You know, there's, it's just easier to pitch sometimes. You know, in Brazil, there are so, it's such a vast place with an awful lot of reporters that maybe at times it can be quite difficult to get your pitch through, particularly if you're writing for British or American media, right, that already put Latin America fairly down the pecking order. But, yeah... I would definitely recommend it. I'm not sure to to start a career, but certainly to to spend some time.
0: (laughs) Sure, yeah. And something about Uruguay does seem kind of to fit with monocle, the brand. I don't Mm. know, makes sense in some way to me. How soon do you think you'll move, do you know?
1: Oh, within, yeah, very soon. I mean, the whole idea is that this IMF saga is going to be running throughout the next few years so I mean one of the beauties is that I say it's two hours away on a ferry so with that in mind I've been going so frequently that I almost feel like I practically live there already sure (laughs) but um, I think that it it is becoming a, a bigger story particularly for the FT readership right I'm not saying that it is the big LATAM story of the year by any means but Argentina is in a real financial mess and so for their readers and their subscribers, it is a story that needs covering, as with Chile, really.
0: Yeah, a lot of money tied up there. Exactly. I guess I was just curious about, uh, since we didn't talk about it that much at the beginning, about how you're covering Chile and uh, if you have much experience there and how you found covering that story in the inauguration, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that kind of the first big story you've done since being hired on by FT?
1: I'd say Chile, there's a lot going on in Chile at the moment, just like lots of Latin American countries. You have the election and then you sort of wait this excruciating period of three months when they actually assume office, which is quite confusing, I think, for people who are based in other places that they think, well, when you win the election, then you're, you know, then there you go. Your work starts the next day. So in Chile, the election, it was a two round election. So it started in it was all in November, and then December, and then he's inaugurated in March. So no, I've been following the story well before then. And I'd say when Boric won, that was my first kind of big story. But we did a lot in the lead up to this race, because it was between two very, very different candidates, one from the more extreme right, which was Antonio Cast, who was kind of a nod to Chile's past. And Boric, who is seen as kind of Chile's future, he's as I say, the youngest ever president. He started off as a a student activist. He was protesting to improve uh, levels of education and and things like that in the country. So in terms of my experience of Santiago, no, it's all new. But in a way, what's brilliant is that everything there is kind of new at the moment. There weren't contacts that you could sort of pick up previously. You know, my my predecessor hasn't dealt with this administration ever. Um, These are a group of, yeah, as I say, young Ambitious students who've all come together, and now you know, one of them is a spokesperson for the government, one of them is the president, one of them is essentially a heads up the kind of different Well, he's got lots of different people appointed, but you know, a lot of people who, who Boric has known throughout his working career. So it's great to actually kind of parallel that, that I don't know very much about the country in that sense either, and it's sort of about finding it together. And and the major shift, really, in Chile is that they're rewriting their constitution. So as well as just the election, in July of this year there will be a referendum on whether to introduce a new constitution and get rid of the one that was drafted during the Pinochet dictatorship, and that's very complex. I mean, they're starting from scratch, they have an elected assembly 155 member assembly which is a whole mix of different people I went down there last week to watch some of them voting I mean it's all it's all day they're voting on different articles to include and there are all these sort of parallel meetings going on but they range from school teachers to social workers to lawyers to indigenous leaders so yeah it's really for me I think it's it's going to be a brilliant story to cover and just to watch. And Chile has often been at the forefront of big change in the region. So I think a lot of other countries are kind of looking to what they're doing and and also, you know, how successful they would be. As you say, for an FT reader, Chile has been one of the most stable economies in the region and, and there's been a lot of investment, not only in mining, but in lithium and in uh, pension funds and all sorts of things. So there's a kind of a big question about how Boric will handle all of this, and not just only Boric, right, how the country will take on these new changes, you know. But yes, I must say it's uh, been great to go to Santiago over the, in recent months.
0: Yeah, that's a great story, um, the constitution story. I, I think then, yeah, let's move on to talk about some stories, if that's all right with you. Yeah, lovely. So first, I like to ask the kind of more... Downbeat question, so that we can end on a high note. So, first, I usually ask if you can tell me a little bit about a story that got away, a story you wanted to do, but for whatever reason never came off. Either you couldn't get a key person to talk to you, the reporting trip went wrong, an editor wouldn't take the story, anything really. Does anything come to mind?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, this one, I think more for just the experience is for now definitely the one that got away. So war correspondent and sort of adventurer supreme, Anthony Lloyd, had plans to travel with the Sunday Times to Brazil after the devastating forest fires in 2019. And the Times of London foreign editor had introduced us because I was you know, filing for them on a weekly basis. And we'd set out this plan over the phone, Anthony and I, arranging some interviews, basically with the idea that he... I mean, Anthony, who's covered, you know, many war zones from Afghanistan and Bosnia to Syria, that he could cast his eye on the Brazilian Amazon that, too, is essentially under siege, be that from illegal loggers, miners, the climate crisis. And that was in late 2019, and, well, we all know what came next. But the idea of kind of driving down kilometers of dirt road and river crossings with kind of the attention and new experience of the jungle brought to such a kind of widely respected journalist would have been truly something. Um Anthony is now actually in northeastern Ukraine in the city of I think it's Kharkiv. Anyway, do take a look at his coverage, but I hope to resurrect that story at, at some point. Possibly not with the Times <laughs> given given the current job, but yeah, that was definitely the one that got away.
0: Sure. So the trip didn't happen before the pandemic hit basically
1: no Um, no no and also with the amazon you have to be very careful at what time of year you go i mean you know much better than i jake but you know you there are certain times of year where you wouldn't be able to go or you know heavy rains all of that so already we were kind of trying to suss out the best few weeks and i mean time went on and and then with the coronavirus it's like right it's off
0: yeah i often forget how close those two events were like August 2019 and then the pandemic hitting. Uh, it seems, <laughs> they seem so distant from each other, but it really flew by. It's
1: true, right? I had to double check exactly because I went, well, I went with partly with, with France 24. We did a bit of coverage and I remember we went and sort of, yeah, it must have been late. It was late August. But it seemed, they seemed like completely different years. I couldn't quite believe. Also, all that at the end of that year, you know, you had the Argentina election, we had major events that went on in those last few months and it sort of was all a blur because it was completely dominated by the year that followed, I felt.
0: Yeah, and it fed right into like the Australia fires, which oh,
1: yes, and some
0: other events that like uh, we were lurching from one huge story to the next, basically. To the next, the next.
1: exactly. And, little did we know. <laughs>
0: yeah, little did we know we'd be stuck in one big story for like a year plus. Cool, okay. Um, But yeah, the Amazon will continue to be there, I'm sure. Let's hope.
1: Let's hope at this rate.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, good point. Yeah. Cool. And then if you could pick a story you're proud of that you've done at any point in your career and just kind of tell us the story behind the story of how it all went down.
1: Yeah, so as I said, one of the key reasons I went to Sao Paulo from Venezuela was because I landed an interview with Lula, the former president of Brazil. And he'd been recently convicted on charges of money laundering and corruption. And this was actually the first time he'd sat down with international media since that conviction. And there was every indication, really, that he'd be a candidate in the race the following year, the presidential race, because he'd be able to appeal these charges and eventually run for office. And his lawyers at the time were kind of working on the case, both in Sao Paulo and also in Britain. So I managed my way in by speaking to the British-Australian lawyer, Geoffrey Robertson, who was representing Lula and building his case at the UN Human Rights Commission. And Geoffrey, for, for those who aren't familiar with the name, is a Is respected for what he does, but he's not shy about representing a colourful range of characters. He's represented Julian Assange, Mike Tyson, uh, the the boxer, to name a few. And, I mean, they argued that there was no evidence to support the corruption. And Geoffrey, like many lawyers, reads the Times quite religiously. And so that's how I presented the idea to them. But ultimately, I actually did a feature for Monocle and then a sort of a separate news piece for the paper. And my pitch was basically to give an overview of the state of play in the election race, you know, with a nod to, you know, a year ahead of the uh, the election in 2018. And I remember it was that, like, surprisingly hot kind of October day in Sao Paulo. You know, it's like that it's just springs arriving, and it was when the interview was due to take place. And you know the ones that's kind of really sort of spring on you, and I was in a suit, and I was just sweating buckets, (laughs) (laughs) and I went with Tuca Vieira, who, he's a famous Brazilian photographer, listeners might have seen the aerial shot of Murumbi in Sao Paulo, with these sort of luxury apartments on one side, and the favela that creeps right up to the dividing wall, and it's sort of like an aerial shot, well, Tuca came with me, and we were waiting a really long while in this kind of fairly nondescript waiting room at the instituto lula it's in an area of time called ipiranga and it's a foundation to support i think it's ties to kind of africa and south america and also like honor social movements so anyway there we were in this waiting room and i thought you know he'd be very rushed because i mean he was already running late and give me like 20 minutes max and i wouldn't have nearly enough material to really build this out into a feature. But I think when he saw I spoke Portuguese, and perhaps because he kind of felt quite relaxed, it was the end of a kind of nice, warm, sunny day. I mean, we were there for nearly an hour in his office, and I asked him if he feared going to prison. <laughs> and his answer I subsequently reused on several occasions after the article was published, because in April of 2018, he was, he was sent to prison, and that's where he remained until November 2019. I also went to watch him return to the metal workers' union where he was released, and it kind of felt very cyclical, the whole thing. But I'd say the most interesting part, though, of that piece and why, for me, I'm so proud of it, was also I did an interview with Eduardo Bolsonaro. He is one of Bolsonaro's sons, and he, at the time, was doing press for his father. He was in charge of sorting out interviews with international media. Bolsonaro's popularity was rising, but, like, nowhere near it that of Lula. And Eduardo specifically told me that his father didn't have a chance of winning in 2018, that they expected kind of more congressional seats. He described it sort of like a broader conservative movement in Brazil that they were leading. And well, sure enough, Eduardo is now one of the most voted MPs in Brazilian history, and his father is running again next year. And all that just shows is that, you know, an awful lot can change in a year of politics in Brazil. So all of those kind of placing bets now on October 2022, I'd say be cautious, because quite honestly, if <laughs> you used my feature to base to, to look at any predictions for the following year. But um, but no, it was wonderful. And I'm actually trying to, I hope to I hope to meet Lula again, really, but it was definitely a story I'm proud of.
0: Yeah, well, and uh, what was Lula like? I mean, I've heard he has this charisma and yeah despite being late he'll make you feel like you're the center of the universe when he's meeting with you and like there's uh, you know nothing else he has to do. Was it what you expected uh, interviewing him
1: I, I, I didn't really know what to expect as I said I thought he wasn't going to give me very much time or perhaps the whole atmosphere would be just more of sort of quite quite stressed atmosphere, perhaps. I mean, I was imagining this man, you know, he's got an awful lot of, you know, he's got a huge case to deal with, you know, every day he's with his lawyers and things like that. And on the contrary, he was very relaxed. He clearly knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, you you can't take your eyes off him, even if you wanted to, even if you wanted to turn away. I was desperate to have a look at some of the pictures on the wall, which then later he showed me, he showed me this map that he had in his office and he's marked all the places he's been, which is rather sweet really I mean when you think about it sort of like you know sort of a teenager in your bedroom they've got those maps now where you scratch off <laughs> you know to the places that you've been and he'd and he went sort of guiding me through and saying oh this happened here and look how but I was talking about the international side of Brazil which I think he he does very well and I wouldn't be surprised if he he starts doing that again I mean he was already in Argentina recently he has plans to come to Uruguay um, I'm sure he's got other plans to to go to Europe, pandemic and everything allowing over there. So, so yeah, I felt he, he sort of guided the conversation masterfully. Yeah, it was really something. And I'm so grateful that he gave me the time, to be honest, more than anything. That was the, that was the, main, that was the main feeling. It was like, oh, thank goodness, I've got, I've got a piece here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. And, yeah, I hope you get the chance to talk to him again. I'd be curious to know how things have changed, how he is different now than the first time you had met him. So next up is the lightning round, which is faster paced questions. And I only mean faster in the sense that you don't have to tell the story of your entire life. You can feel free (laughs) to answer at whatever length you like, short or long. Do you feel ready?
1: Yes. Cool.
0: So the first question is about what you read. And for people who are curious about the region you cover and want to know what somebody who covers this region reads could you shout out a publication that you think covers um, your region or one country in your region particularly well that, say, most people in the United States or in the UK wouldn't know of?
1: So in terms of what I look at day to day, I mean, once I've scrolled through the wires, we have access to Reuters, Bloomberg, AP for sort of broader world headlines at the FT. And then I'd say there are two main publications on my list. First is a Buenos Aires-based daily newsletter called Red Accion, that's um, a collection of specific stories from Argentina and its neighbours, as well as sort of what the Argentines are saying about world events. It's twice daily and basically aggregates the news from the main papers and outlets and then gives you links to those stories. And then El País of Spain has versions in Latin America. Sadly, the Portuguese offshoot closed recently, but their commentary was very strong on Brazil. So now I look at El País, Mexico, and then at sort of a local level, I also listen to to quite a lot of radio. Um, I'd say one of the top stations here in Uruguay, in my view, for what I'm doing, is called El Espectador, um, that's available online. And there's a show called Más Tarde Que Nunca, which often has great sort of sit down interviews discussing regional politics or business. Um, there was one recently with Lucia Topolansky, who is the former president, Mujica's wife, who recently resigned as a senator. And she was talking about the role of women in, in, in the Latin American left um, with a kind of a nod to Chile, because for the first time in Chile, we have a, a female-dominated cabinet. So, so that's more or less my kind of news routine.
0: Next question is, What is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun?
1: I mean, when I have downtime, I must say, I think the podcast format is fantastic. As I say, I listen to your podcast on long walks. And when I have downtime, I mean, the Times of London has a superbly produced podcast called Stories of Our Times that was launched in 2020 alongside Times Radio. And it's five days a week, but it covers sort of themes around major world news events, kind of building out the story in a way that I find, yeah, just really distracts me in a little in a little way, and often about things that I, you know, not even briefly covering. So, you know. And the hosts are David Aranovich and there's this investigative journalist Manveen Rana. And they have they have brilliant voices. You know, you need a good voice on a podcast. <laughs> and I I mean the one they did one about North Korea that I'd recommend. And also one about the Metropolitan Police in London, I find i I've got an eye on what's going on in England, but I think culturally when you've I've now lived nearly what well, six years away from London, and I must say I enjoy that format to be able to sort of hone in on culturally what people are talking about. Um, this case of the Metropolitan Police is a, is a shocking case of a woman my age, who was raped and murdered by police officers in London, which is absolutely shocking. But yeah, I'd say the Times of London, stories of our times, it's very broad, kind of step away from the headlines. And yeah, great on long walks, (laughs) or just walks, don't have to be long ones.
0: (laughs) Cool. Yeah, no, I've not heard of that. It's good to get a new recommendation. What is the best journalistic article piece, again, can be in whatever medium? that you have consumed recently and it can't be from your own publication.
1: I actually wanted to share something more specifically from Uruguay and something Spanish speaking as you know I tend to read sure. a lot from local media. I think um, El Observador, it's an independent newspaper here that was founded after the military dictatorship and this piece was about uh, an actress called China Soria who if you haven't heard of had this formidable career spanning decades. She was a comedian, absolutely hilarious. And she actually won a British Council scholarship, I learned, during wartime, uh, Second World War, to visit London, so in about 1944-45. And many believe China was from Uruguay. That happens a lot here. (laughs) We have some very famous Uruguayans who the Argentines sort of sort of reel in to be there. So, for example, Carlos Gardel, the famous tango singer, he's also Uruguayan. Uh, the modern-day chef, Francis Malman, he's also Uruguayan. Anyway, this year, China on it's to mark her 100th birthday. She would have been 100 on March 14th, and she'll be remembered across the country, but El Observador did a, did a really excellent profile on her and kind of adding that kind of humour in into the piece.
0: Um, it's in Spanish, the piece? I assume?
1: Yes, yes, Spanish
0: speaking. I'll still try to get a link for it uh, for our Spanish speakers out there. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be?
1: Well, I mean, one job that a friend of mine does, Avantica Chilcotti, she's The Economist's roving international correspondent that sounds absolutely great fun she pitches a different destination each month. But if I had to pick a career, as Evante and I are of a similar age, and so I hope we will, we have several years ahead of us, it would be that of Hella Pick. She was arguably the first ever female foreign correspondent. Um, in 1960, she became the UN correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. Alistair Cook was her editor at the time. And Women, when she started out, as we know, were not treated as equals, but she was actually shuttered out of, like, ambassadors' dinners because the women had to formally withdraw after the meal while the men, including her own colleagues and many of her competitors, discussed the events of the day over cigars and glasses of port. So initially, she she didn't even get the diplomatic briefings. And throughout a successful career reporting for British and German publications, whether on President Nixon. I think she famously shared a plane to Moscow with him. She covered parts of the Silk Road. She went to West Africa. And I believe she really changed the way we as women now can report and also how our colleagues and, more importantly, how our editors view us, you know, what kind of stories they put us on. And even more remarkable, really, is how Hella was, well, is, she's still alive, a minority kind of several times over. I mean, she's not only a woman, but she was a refugee from Austria during the war and is Jewish. And um, in fact, if anyone is interested, she wrote a really lovely piece to mark her 90th birthday for the Condé Nast Traveller magazine a few years ago, which is worth looking up. But yes, I'd say if I had to pick a career, it would be hers.
0: Yeah, wow, I haven't heard of her. I assume she must be one of the first, uh, because, yeah, everybody talks about, like, Martha Gellhorn.
1: I think it's a very difficult one to... And also because she's covering... Kind of, you know, she's European, and she was in New York. And so I guess it's a sort of different interpretations of who was doing what and when, right? And who landed which stories.
0: Sure, sure. What is one thing that most people don't know about you?
1: I'd say it's that I enjoy... ...doing ballet. Um, I did it as a child... ...and then when I became a teenager... ...became very disinterested... ...when there were more fun things going on... ...like boys and hanging out. And when I started work at the FT... ...a colleague of mine... ...suggested that there was this central school of ballet... ...that was not far from us... ...it was across the river... ...and it was a proper ballet school... for, for, ...for young students... ...and in the evenings they'd do adult classes... And it wasn't, you know, one of those where you had to, you know, sign up gym membership type thing. It was just sort of like pay as you go, come along. At times with an actual pianist who would play the music for us. And, and I loved it. I did that for several years. I'd go once or twice a week. And then when I moved to South America, I tried out a few classes. But the trouble is, is that in the case of Brazil, for example, all the classes are sort of Portuguese mixed with French which is incredibly difficult if you have been used to doing it in kind of English with, you know, the French positions. Um, So I was always kind of two steps behind. I gave it my best shot, I have to say. Um, And no, and then the pandemic obviously meant that that was virtually impossible to have closed classes. You know, ballet, you you can't do ballet in a park, that's for sure. But I still have my shoes and I'm hoping, particularly in Buenos Aires, that has a, a big dance tradition, whether that's tango or milonga or, or sort of more formal classical ballet, um, I'm hoping to, to get those shoes out. Those are certainly something that came with me in my, in my suitcases <laughs> across these different Latam countries. So, so, yeah, I'll have to get them out, and I'll, I'll keep you posted if I, if I go. But I think that's something that people don't know about me.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't know about it before this. What is your most embarrassing journalism-related story?
1: Uh, Well, this takes me back, actually, to one of my first weeks as a kind of intern temp at the FT. Um, The editor at the time, Lionel Barber, was due to meet the then Brazilian finance minister, Guido Mantega. And a bunch of us were invited to the meeting. And I remember it was the first time I'd gone down into the newsroom. The office was on Southwark Bridge at the time. And I'm notoriously early. I mean, even by British standards, which you can imagine in Latin America, means, you know, I take a good book or a magazine to most meetings as they are late. So I got to this kind of glass-walled room, and there, sure enough, was the finance minister. He's instantly recognisable. Do Google him if you... I mean, I'm sure you know who he is. And um, he's talking to his advisor or translator in Portuguese, and he turns to me and asked me to pour him some coffee. So, of course I do. And he's like, do you have any sugar? I'm like, sure. Anyway. (laughs) And and soon the other colleagues and editors kind of started filtering in, and they invite me, obviously, to sit down with them. So there I am, Miss Coffee Girl, sat directly opposite him. And I'm asked, because I'm the only one who speaks fluent Portuguese in the room, to ask the question... So, I mean, really, it's more embarrassing for him than me, but, but that story kind of really stood out where, you know, you, you're just starting out, you don't really know how things work, but it's also a huge reflection of our industry, right? It can't possibly be, you know, the young girl in the room right. who's actually going to ask the questions. But, yeah, I'm not sure if, if it, it was more anecdotal than anything else, but, yeah, I, uh, I remember being quite embarrassed just by the whole thing, both for him and me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an awkward situation to be in. And uh, I think you came out the better for it rather than him in that story. So I think it's all good. And then the next question is kind of the opposite of that. What is the coolest or weirdest or strangest situation that your work has ever gotten you into? It could be positive or negative, good or bad. I mean, serious or light. I kind of try to sum it up as like a pinch me. I can't believe this is my life sort of moment.
1: French Guyana was a place that I'd have never ended up had it not been for journalism. It's a department of France in South America, but, I mean, really couldn't be further from the kind of beaches of Normandy and markets of Provence that we, as Brits, are familiar with. There's only one flight a week from Brazil, and I went to write a sort of a a, a postcard from the capital, Cayenne, talking about Guyana. And, I mean, the place is what... I imagine travel was probably like back in the 1950s and 60s. There is like only one main road across the northern coast. And when you look down on Google Maps, there's just nothing, just jungle. Um, and the characters at the kind of one slightly upmarket bar in Cayenne, the, the, it looks like those sort of New Orleans French colonial homes, you know, with a veranda out front and rooms to rent up top and there sitting down drinking Teponche, which is this like very hard liquor served with sugar which is very popular in France there were these like a couple of young soldiers from the french foreign legion because they have a base in guyana they were sat there alongside these kind of quite questionable business types some of them with sort of like gold rolex watches these kind of older bearded possible writers but I mean not a kind of modern day tourist in sight I mean you'd really need a reason to go um and it's right next to Suriname a place that was again one of those sort of the one that got away I was so close but I didn't I didn't get to to visit but yeah I'd say French Guyana was probably one of the cooler craziest places that the privilege that this job gives us right is to go to some of these far-flung places
0: yeah wow i would love to go there i i think i've never proposed a story there i've kind of done some like cursory looking into it but i think every time somebody does it ends up being you know something about like environmental destruction or something like that and it just is very expensive and possibly very dangerous like compared to telling that story from other places
1: very dangerous yeah no, very dangerous. The levels of crime and, no, and also just, is, as I said, I mean, you literally go down on Google Maps and there is nothing. So, you know, you could get yourself into an awful lot of trouble. And and they have a satellite, they have a space station there. So they launch rockets, they launch satellites from French Guyana, for both from the European space station, but also Russia and a couple of others. So that also is just crazy. And we went to the actual space station to have a look. A lot of the, the writing there is in, in Russian, so you know that you know, there, are, there are people you know, working at the base regularly. I mean, and they launch rockets all the time. Again, environmentally terrible, right? Here you are in the middle of the jungle and you've got all these explosives and all the, you know, everything that comes with, with, with launching a rocket. But no, I, I think there's a lot more to write about it. And really, from a French perspective, of course, the, the sort of time that I went, there were some protests calling for independence really because as i said it's it's a department of france just like paris or normandy and yet they receive very little funding and the levels of sort of health care and everything are under an awful lot of pressure so there are some people calling for the country to be independent but well i don't know it's a, it's difficult put it that way
0: yeah yeah i love being reminded by french diplomats that france is an amazon country too um just funny to think about. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is your favourite film, book, TV or other media about journalists and why?
1: I like this question, Jake. What first came to mind is the comedy, the front page. Uh, there's a film from the 1970s. It's actually an adaptation of, of an original play and also a film from the 1930s. And it's all about a newsroom. Is this investigative journalist who thinks he's basically landed the story of a lifetime when this convict who's basically accused of murder escapes a hanging? And I guess, you know, our job is just full of these odd moments, very, you know, heightened stress. And this comedy kind of really encapsulates that newsroom feeling, which is uh, slightly bordering on the ridiculous at times when you get kind of get swept away by a story. And yes, we have changed somewhat in the digital era of. Slack and email and all these things, but I think the, the film starring Jack Lemon is, is one to watch.
0: And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do?
1: Gosh, that's a, I think part of me would have really liked to be like a music scout, like to find bands. I really enjoy not only going to gigs, but I like this idea of kind of discovery and meeting, getting into new... Groups of people and meeting new people. And, and I think the idea of like, I mean, nowadays it's very different because it's all kind of online and, you know, you find people through YouTube. But I think to be, yeah, to be like an A&R rep where you go out there and you're meant to find new talent and you get them signed on to record labels and have a great time in the meantime <laughs> at the concerts. Yeah, I think, I think that. Possibly an actress, I think it's just too much like hard work. I think you'd have to sort of, with acting, you'd have to choose the period where you were a star. But no, I, I'd, say, I'd say that not as ambitious as an astronaut, as too much studying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. No, but that sounds like it would be a lot of fun, yeah. Involves some of the the quest of journalism, but uh, kind of probably more of a fun scene being a music scout. Um. Okay, cool. Well, uh, yeah, let me just wrap up by saying um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lucinda.
1: No, real treat, Jake. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lucinda Elliott, the South Cone correspondent for the Financial Times in South America. I'll post links to some of the things Lucinda talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page foreignpod.podbean.com If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, May 1st. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Forum Correspondence.